so much. It's a complete privilege being here. <coughs> and um, sure, I could, I could testify all morning how um, the injury of my wrist changed my life, how nothing is as it was, and how I wouldn't want to miss a single step of the way. But whilst I was actually due to the hand spending time in bed last week because I was sick of um, the pain that new movements caused, um, I was actually doubting. I was like, okay, what is the word God wants to bring to all of you? And I was about to prepare like five old service sermons and just send the sermon notes. So you have the notes and then decide this morning because I didn't really know what to say. And then the one morning, I think it was Wednesday, Thursday morning, it was the first day that I actually felt better and I was like, okay, um, let me go and have a coffee and actually have some breakfast somewhere and just take my Bible along. And whilst I was sitting there, I was reading over a scripture that I had read a lot, lot of times before, but suddenly something else stood out. And the Holy Spirit started speaking um, of a different theme with the same scripture. So when I'm speaking this morning, I'm probably speaking as much to myself as I am to you. <clears throat> and I'm just praying that what we will share this morning is just a moment of, of the Holy Spirit ministering to us. And I'd just love to say a short prayer for us to just prepare our hearts. Father God, you are the Almighty, the King above all kings, a God of compassion. And I pray this morning that you will reveal your heart to us. Holy Spirit, that you minister to us in a completely new way. That you open up the boxes of our thinking. That you take away the roof of our minds and minister to our hearts. Father, this morning I surrender all my own thoughts, my own ideas. And I lay everything before you. Glorify yourself as we look unto you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so the name of the sermon is Lifting the Roof. And I actually want to read quite a bit of scripture with you before I actually start going into it. Because if I have a passion, it is reading God's word and discovering what is within. So <clears throat> let's go ahead. Let's start reading. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 1 verse 45 up to 2 verse 14, which is a couple of verses before and beyond the actual scripture that we're going to talk about most of the time. But he, that is the healed leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And when they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can give, forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in a spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Raise up, rise up, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to give, forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were, were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, he that is Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. <clears throat> I read this pa passage before, and I love putting it into context. That's the verse before and the verse afterwards. So I'm going to jump to the first part, which is the verse just before the story starts. And the verse reads, but he, the healed leper, <coughs> went out and began to talk freely about it. This guy, he was testifying of what Jesus had done. And those of you that have met me a year ago know that if I love doing something, it is testifying of what God has done. And so for me, it was a stark contrast. Jesus telling people, don't talk about it when he healed them. Because it was kind of the opposite of what I tend to tell people. You healed? Okay, go testify. But Jesus does, at times, he tells people, go home, tell everybody about it, or show yourself to the priests, and at other times he tells them to shut up. And we kind of, we, I start, I'm startled. I'm like, why? How could he? But here we see why. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. There were people following him because of his fame and not because of his message. And if there's a huge crowd following you around constantly, pressing for miracles, limiting your bubble, your personal bubble of personal space, and you don't get rest, and you don't get find time to, to rest, to talk to your inner circle, to your friends, you don't get time to sleep properly because you spend your nights praying because there isn't time in the day and you don't get to eat proper meals, you'll burn out eventually because we all need that rest. So there's times when Jesus tells people, don't talk about it. And why? Well, I, I see an answer here. Um, that is the next slide after the scriptures, please. Yes, <clears throat> Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. 
He had people pressing in around him constantly. His fame grew. People were following him for the miracles. But they were not interested in the message of the kingdom of God advancing. They were not interested in his message as such. They were interested for all he could do, but they were not interested in his heart. And he asked the healed not to testify, but he did. So people were pressing in, and Jesus removed himself from the crowd once again to try and get away. And when we continue reading, we read that he returned to Capernaum. It is the next? Yes. And after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So this place, Capernaum, it became a home, so to say. Many of his disciples that were fishermen, they came from Capernaum. They knew the space. They knew the environment. And it was a place they often dwelled at. It was close to the Sea of Galilee. And it was still, um, it was still in Galilee, but it was around the borders of all the other places. So it was sort of a social hot pot in a certain sense. And it says many were gathered. When we look to Luke, we actually find that people from Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem were all gathered together because there were crowds following him around. It wasn't only those that were local and there was no more room. I mean, imagine this place being so filled with people that there's no more room. When I enter an elevator, it normally says, open for 12 people. And when I'm in there with two or three others, I'm like, okay, this is full. Get out of my space. Imagine 12 people being in an elevator. You should actually try it. Um, just the only thing you shouldn't do is start doing this because it'll stop midway, okay? Don't do that. I've tried it. <clears throat> but try getting in there with 12 people. If people are pressing in on you, there's no more room. Now imagine a place where they're gathered, where they feel home, so it's a house, it's sort of this inner circle of a place where they, where they gather together, this courtyard. And Jesus is quite apparently in one of those rooms and he can't find space, really. His disciples are probably around, acting as some sort of bodyguard, um, but there's many and there's no more room. And it goes on to say, not even at the door. So people are pushing in. They're really pushing in. Now, I like being around friends, and I like getting hugs, but I don't like crowds. These fishermen, they didn't like crowds. Okay, my father's been a fisherman all his life as, as one of the things that he loves doing, while it's not his profession, but if I can tell you one thing, fishermen are not the talkiest people around. <laughs> Especially, because two things meet. They fish, which seems to be a s this attribute of being a silent person goes with it at times. And the other thing is, they're men. Okay, then I, I don't know why, but men don't seem to be these chatterboxes. <coughs> so when I observe my father and my brother fishing, they'll sit there, stare at the waves, in between do something like, mm-hmm. And they'll return home and feel they spoke about everything. <laughs> okay, somebody can relate. 
I can't. <laughs> they sit there in silence and they feel they spoke about everything. Now Jesus gathers these fishermen around himself as disciples and they're being pressed together by a crowd of people constantly. They're out of the comfort zone constantly. It's not their thing. But there's no more room, not even in the door. So definitely not much room about around Jesus either. But I want to look at this door. When we go to the next slide, I want to see who goes through that door. We're talking about a literal door. This is not a figurative thing that people, we sometimes assume where Jesus is the door. This is just a door in the text. And Jesus is present, but who is there? It's friends and family of those disciples. Possibly about, of Jesus as well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's Jesus and his disciples. There's people from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. There's scribes. Those that lecture on the word of God, the theologians and the Pharisees. They all go and enter through that door. And they're all there for different reasons. Some of them are just a crowd wanting to see another miracle. Some of them are following Jesus around, being out of their comfort zone constantly and trying to learn. Some of them are family and friends, knowing they'll, they might have to defend what their family members did in and around Jesus' crowd to outsiders and try and push down all the gossip going on. And some of them want to know, is this guy dangerous to us as Pharisees? Dangerous to our teachings? Is he a blasphemer? Does he mock God? Very religious people. And they're all gathered together. But <clears throat> when we look at that situation, it isn't that different from our doors, is it? When we come to Jesus, there's different people coming. There's those that just want to go check this thing out called faith. There's those coming to a huge gathering where they hear somebody has been healed. Sometimes coming with hope. Sometimes just coming because they're nosy. And there are the theologians, those that really love scripture and they want to see if something is preached that might not go hand in hand with the word of God. There's the believing Christians. But through our doors, different things come as well, our traditions. Now you might say, oh, no, 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 we are not the, one of those traditional churches. I tell you, you are, we are. We have our own traditions of how somebody gets saved, how somebody has to behave in the service, that somebody stands during worship, somebody might close their eyes during prayer, when somebody needs to be baptized, who's allowed to do this and that, and how you're supposed to behave. We have our own traditions, and traditions come. And we also have culture that comes with our tradition, our language, our behaviors. How do you greet somebody? How do you dress properly? And there's our worldviews. Sometimes these worldviews adhere to the place that we're in. But specifically looking at London, worldviews are not typical to London. They're typical to the singular person who comes from a certain culture. Because it's a boiling pot of cultures. 
And these things come in through our doors as well. And to all of these, Jesus is speaking. To all of us, Jesus is speaking. He doesn't say, okay, let me talk to the Christians or let me talk to the world. He doesn't say, oh, listen, you can come in. Your worldview has to stay outside. Your culture has to be set aside. He comes and he invites them all in. They're all following him. He doesn't tell them, listen, stay away. I know you've come to see wonders and miracles and get some food <clears throat> that is free of charge. But you heard from a guy that I told not to speak about it. This is an exclusive club. No, he invites them all in. Jesus goes far beyond anything you and I could ever imagine. He goes to an extent where he talks and touches people that were not to be touched or talked to if you wanted to teach from the word of God. He doesn't care how the person next to him smells or looks or behaves. Well, I have to admit, I do. I presume we all do, but he doesn't. And they all enter through the door. So when we continue in the text, we find that the story continues. There's a group of men bringing a paralytic, four of them actually. So they're carrying the paralytic and they're carrying the bed. And a specific thing happens. <clears throat> a group of friends arrives late. Now, I'm kind of saying this with a little smile because I was here inside this room while Sufisu was trying for 10 minutes to actually gather the people inside this room this morning <laughs> and being heard. And um, it made me smile. But this group of friends, they're coming late. Now imagine if you came late for a service or not well in advance, you wouldn't be able to fit through that door. People would be stacked down the corridor of that door. Would you still come, hoping to hear? Or wouldn't you? These people are pressing in, they want to see, and there's this group of friends coming late and they've got a reason for it. They didn't sleep long, but they made all the way carrying a weight, the weight of a friend, somebody in need. <clears throat> and they quite apparently do something extraordinary. They're trying to get in through the door. None of the people pressing in feels the need to make way for them. I mean, the need is obvious, isn't it? The guys are carrying a bed. But nobody feels the need to actually open the way for them to get through to Jesus because they're all eager to get part of Jesus as well. So they're figuring out another way. They're going up the roof. Now, if you want to lift a roof, it's going to make a racket. <coughs> But if there's a crowd gathered together trying, you know, to, to figure out what Jesus is doing and he's going to one side and touching a person and that person is being held and everybody's, ooh, ah, no way. And he's going to the other side and saying something specific into that situation and that person is like, wow, that really touched me. And the next one, really? Did he just say that? And the next one is asking, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> there's a record going on with all the people. They're not as silent as you are sitting here and listening politely. There's a racket going on. Everybody wants to know. So they decide, okay, let's go up the roof. Let's lift the roof. Nobody is actually bothered by the sounds of the roof being lifted. At least it's not important enough to enter up and end up in the Bible. But they have 
They have faith. They are sure of one thing. They are sure Jesus has the authority everybody else says because they persevere. They persevere whilst lifting the roof. They persevere working with their hands. They didn't expect to come there. They didn't bring a hammer and they didn't bring tools to remove that roof. They need to, you know, think on their feet. And they need to carry a paralytic up that roof. So they do all that. They remove, they persevere, they remove the roof. They lift the roof. And that is what really stood out to me. And now that we've passed sort of the entrance phase, we're going to get to the actual service. <coughs> I want to talk to you about lifting the roof. Um, I've heard this saying a long time ago. It says, the sky is the limit. Who of you has heard that before? Okay. Who of you sometimes wish that were the case? Yes. I sometimes wish it were the case. The sky is the limit. I've got dreams. I've got visions. I've got ideas of what I want to do, of how my society lo should look, how people should look at me, how others should look at other people, and how this should work. And being a primary school teacher doesn't help, okay? It gets, it gets your list only to extend. <coughs> you know what I'm talking of, are you? <laughs> um, so my question for you this morning is, what if there was no limit to the possible? What would be different? Just give it some thought in your private life in your work life, in London, in your borough? What would look different if there was no limit to the possible? If God was there? And what would get uncomfortable in your life because of it? I want to look at this thing called lifting the roof. Because I find, I find it a difficult thing to lift my roof. When we look at the next slide, <coughs> what is my roof? What is your roof? What is our roof? First of all, and primarily, I'm presuming it's our comfort zone. The question I had to ask myself living in Berlin is, what would happen if I would open up my house? The second thought is, oh, what will I do with the keys? Will I have to be there? What happens if I want to go to sleep? What about my food in my fridge? And how about the tidiness and neatness that I like in certain aspects? Who would just open up drawers and cupboards and actually go and uncover what is inside them? What if people would see how I live? And I went one step further. <coughs> We've got a huge um, place. It's almost like Piccadilly Circus. We call it Alexanderplatz. And um, recently they set up a police station there, um, a mobile one, because crime is skyrocketing high. And at some stage I was walking across that place and I was thinking, what if God caused me to live in a glass house right there? Yes, there's some private zones, of course, but what would happen if people were able to observe me in every single moment, in every aspect of my life? Standing outside the walls, looking in. 
would they recognize Christ? Or would people only recognize Christ whilst I'm standing in front of a crowd like you guys who actually intentionally look for Christ? And I had to find that my comfort zone and my ego is cause <clears throat> for not lifting the roof of my own ideas and horizons, but also my tradition. What is it you don't talk about in this society? I mean, in Berlin, it's very easy. There's topics we can talk about in any given situation, and there's other topics you can't talk about. You can't talk about Jesus. You can talk about religion. Don't talk about Jesus. You can talk about any atrocity in the sexual area openly. People will be interested. Just don't talk about Jesus. I presume in London at the moment, don't talk about Brexit, is it? <laughs> Our traditions tell us what to talk about and what not to talk about. But how often do we actually go down and say, okay, God, is there something you tell me not to talk about? Or am I able to lay my life open before you because you're brethren? Because you're brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I scared? because of the abuse I might suffer if you shared what I'd share with you, with other people that I didn't want to know? Or do I feel safe? Do I feel at home? Am I willing to be authentic and vulnerable at the same time? So my traditions tell me certain aspects. My worldview gives me a roof. It tells me how to deal with people. And my gods, my idols do. What do I spend most of my time with during the day? What do I spend most of my thoughts on during the day? If I want to find out what my thoughts are dwelling on, all I need to go is try and go to bed and go sleep. Because my, my thoughts will go random, okay? All, the, all those whinings up in my brain that haven't had enough traffic during the day, or enough of a voice, they'll randomly shout at me in the evenings. <clears throat> what am I dwelling on? What are my idols? Am I a fan? Or am I a follower? So when we continue the whole thing, we see that Jesus tells them, after they lift the roof, you have faith. And because they have faith, Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven. That's strange. What meets the eye is the obvious. He needs to be healed, isn't it? It's like somebody coming hungry and I'm telling him, oh, listen, your sins are forgiven. He's like, okay, give me some bread. And then I'll listen. Isn't that what we teach each other? But he says, no, 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 you've got faith. But what does that faith imply? Many times when we read about Jesus telling somebody that they have faith, it is that he's telling them, he's acknowledging that they are trusting his authority. People who are doubting that Jesus is who he is and comes with the authority of God, they're not the ones called that they to be faithful. They're not the ones called that they have faith. But these are quite apparently trusting the authority of of Jesus, trusting that he can do what seems impossible. 
They're trusting who Jesus is. They're trusting his identity. They're trusting he has the same power God has. He has the same authority God has. He has the same abilities. Whoever wants anything to do with God has to deal with Jesus first. They're trusting that. And they're hoping that what they're trusting in will come true. To Jesus, this faith seems more apparent than disability. The sins of the paralytic seem to be a greater cause than the disability that he cares with his body. And if I've learned one thing in my life, it is my life is so much more than my arm and my wrist. And at some stage I had to choose. Is it going to be my idol? Is every thought going to circle around the condition of my health? Yes, I have to give it some thought. But what, what kind of a stage am I going to offer it? Is the invisible, the trusting in God, more important than the visible? Is the heart more important than the body of a person? When I go to Africa, and I know many of, of you have been there and lived there for quite a while, we find that often, interestingly enough, the heart seems more important than the body. We find people having faith that I admire in situations that I wouldn't want to swap with. And we find that they put a different focus than we do. So I need to ask myself, is the invisible more important to me than the visible. And I have to admit many times, sadly I have to say, no, it isn't. Who of you got up this morning thinking, okay, I'm going to church, what do I need to dress like? I did. Who of you considers wearing makeup when leaving the house, going to work or to church, but doesn't when they go home and stay home? And it's okay. It has a place. But does that reflect our behavior in different situations? And to take it one step further, have I and have we gotten used to being forgiven? That is a question I had to ask myself. When I meet people on, out on the streets, it is very easy to approach a person and talk to them and share the gospel message if they have some sort of ailment, if they're walking on crutches, if they have a cast, if they have a quite apparent need, I'll get into a conversation over that and I'll ask them, can I pray for that? And sometimes my assumption is, should God heal? I still have a window open that I could share the gospel. Because we so often respond to what we see. The primary thing isn't for a person to be healed. The primary thing in my life and my primary aim isn't to be healed. Yes, it would be great. I wouldn't mind at all. But it isn't the primary aim. It is to be forgiven. It is to be found faithful. But when I look at my prayers, my prayers reveal the truth. You know, our mind can trick us at times. It'll tell me and it might tell you, Oh, yes, it's important. It's important to have all the invisible things. We might think about them, but our actions speak louder than our thoughts. 
And when I look at my actions and I look at my prayer time, what do my prayers focus on? On the physical? They do. I start my prayers usually, you know, having one or two sentences of praise and worship and approaching God, and then I hammer it at him. All the questions and requests and intercession needs and points that I have. And listen, that is asking for God's hand, and it is good. We can do that. We're called to do that. But if I only come to Milani when I want something of her, that's not a friendship, is it? No. If I only come to you and address you every time I need something, that, that's not a relationship really, is it? Am I asking for God's hand or am I asking for his heart? Am I counting the visible or the invisible more important? And my aim is not to tell you only focus on the one or only focus on the other or you're bad because you're the, the one primarily. But let us ask God what time it is, what we need to focus on, and let us be open for it to be different than our own ideas. Next slide. So, Jesus does something incredible. The scribes and the Pharisees, they question him. They call him a blasphemer because he forgives sin. And Quite apparently, the paralytic knows in that moment that his sins are forgiven, that he's found the biggest gift of all. Because the story doesn't tell me that he's flabbergasted. He doesn't say a word about it in the story, about not being physically healed yet, but the Pharisees do, and the scribes do in their hearts. And Jesus uncovers that. They count the visible more important than the invisible, as I do often as well. And Jesus has a response for them. He heals as a response, confirming that he's a God of compassion. And that is very, very important. Because God, who has compassion, in the Old Testament, that makes him very different from any other gods around so basically, Jesus, by healing, confirms again he has authority to forgive sins because he's the God of compassion. And he responds to that need. But, but what he basically says is Jesus lifts the roof for the crowd. By healing the guy, he lifts the roof for the Pharisees and the scribes. It's as if he lifts a veil in front of them. He, he left something that's absolutely extraordinary. Because only when they see he can heal as well, he responds to the visible, even though he shouldn't need to. But when he responds to the visible, what has caused it is that everybody's amazed. Everybody is, uh, is glorifying God. Before that, they were watching Jesus do some miracles. Before that, they saw him forgive sins, and they were like, okay, is that really true? And you know, you and I, we've all had those thoughts, I'm certain. We ask God for forgiveness right in the beginning of our walk with Christ, and we're like, is it truly forgiven? Need to bring it, do I need to bring it again and again? Because we still feel sorry about it. Jesus, what he's doing here is, in his mercy and grace, he is lifting the roof for those present. 
is saying, okay, I'll respond to what you need to see so that you can discover who I am. They didn't come there to glorify God. They didn't come there to be amazed about the kingdom of God being, having come on earth as it is in heaven. But in Jesus, impersonated, that's the situation that they find. He finds that faith in five people present, not in his disciples, and four men that carry a friend, lift the roof, and let down a paralytic. Those five from all the crowds are the ones that already lifted the roof of their minds because they trusted in the authority and identity of Christ and they decided to have faith beyond any doubt. <clears throat> and all the others, including his disciples, as we've seen so many stories, they've got a roof overhead in their thinking. There's traditions, there's norms, there's values, there's culture, there's theologians' ideas. There's worldviews, but Jesus in this instance does the miraculous once again. And the miraculous is not that he heals. The miraculous is that he lifts the roof so that people can glorify God. I want to take the last part of the story. We have a guy here, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. It's the guy we call Matthew. I put that name in there so you actually remember. So what he does is, once Jesus has lifted the roof and everybody is busy glorifying God, he has a chance to get his message through to the people. His message of the kingdom of God having come near. Everybody was there to see the miracles. Everybody was there to to have the fame, Jesus used that door opener. But now that everybody is listening, he doesn't fall short of teaching them. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. He uses that open door. He is not too proud to speak to those who understand immediately and leave the rest behind and to tell them off because they've come for the wrong reasons. He invites them in. He allows himself and his disciples to be crowded on to a point where it's uncomfortable and tiring. And then, once the roofs are lifted, not to their own doing, but due to Jesus' doing, he teaches them. He sends out his message again, trusting that it will not return void. And quite apparently it doesn't. Because he goes on. And he meets this Matthew guy, who's a tax collector, He's not the guy the people wanted much to do with, neither the Romans nor the Jews. And all he says is, follow me. And he says so after he's lifted the roof of everybody. Nobody's in for it for a lucky, lucky chance of seeing some miracles. He says, he calls out, follow me. And calling out, follow me, is not an easy thing. This Matthew guy, he has lots to lose. He's already lost his place in society. He's lost his fame. He's lost the favor of his family and friends. He has nobody to celebrate Shabbat with. He has nobody that wants to spend time with him 
nobody to celebrate his birthday with. Nobody actually cares about that. He's lost everything. If he loses his job, he can't return in a week's time and tell the Romans, oh, listen, I reconsidered. I'm going to do the job again. That's not the way the society works. He says to him, follow me. Matthew realizes it's an all-in or all-out situation. He rises and he follows Jesus. So what does that leave me with? What does that leave you with? To tell you the truth, I have garden boxes. I know, I, I used to know how I expected God to heal. I think sometimes I get a feeling of knowing what it means to pray and to intercede. I've been trained by pastors like Hercules how to preach many years ago. And they were having a rough time with this German girl being so straight up in a very Afrikaans society. They took a lot of beating. And it took some while to shut me up. I, have, I love my boxes. And I love my bubble. But listen, that's not what Jesus is asking is of me. And it's not what he's asking of you. If Jesus can only get the kingdom of God into me, into my system, into my world, once I'm ready to lift off the roof, to me that means he's asking, are you willing to sacrifice your boxes and your bubble? Are you willing to let go? And part of that is so. I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice to decide that God is good no matter whether he heals. I have to make a choice whether God is good when things run very unexpected and they go very differently to everything I thought they would. My roof is not completely off yet. Every single day, if I truly spend time with God, I discover here I'm hitting the roof. And in those special moments, the Holy Spirit is hitting the roof from the other side and sometimes we break away some pieces. And I'm getting glimpses at the fact that not even the sky is the limit. But when I said, when I responded to Jesus, when he asked, will you follow me? And I responded, I would. I basically agreed. I agreed to say, okay, lift my roof. I agreed to un uncomfortable situations. Growth doesn't happen in our comfort zones. Sadly, it doesn't. And you know something? It's very easy to say one thing and live another. It was very easy for me to tell people to trust in God's healing whilst I didn't have much trouble. It is easy to say that. It is a very different situation if you've been in constant pain for years. It is a choice we make. Many things that are things we can choose. Gratitude is a choice. It 
something we need to train constantly. It doesn't come naturally. Love is far beyond a feeling. It's a choice. There will always be those moments when you don't feel like loving another person. You rather feel like wringing their necks. Yes. When you get try going without food for a while and going without sleep for a while and being in a lot of noise for a while and then try being very thankful and very grateful and very friendly. It's a hard thing. There's a lot of choices I can make. All the fruits of the Spirit do not come naturally. They come with severe training, of perseverance. This morning I want to invite you. Let's allow God to lift our roofs. But I want to be honest. It's going to be a hard journey. It's going to be an uncomfortable journey. There's many moments when it won't feel nice. So I put this here in intention, on intention, on purpose. My question to you is, is your roof off yet? And I'm trusting God that in the next couple of minutes, you'll find a couple of instances where, that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you where your roof is not off yet. And I want to leave that question with you. Will you follow me? And it's not me asking, it's not Hercules asking, it's not Shofar asking. Will you follow Jesus? Will you trust in him? Trust means I don't know what's coming. Obedience means I'm probably not agreeing. Before that, it's just a matter of we are of the same opinion. But I don't want to pressure you to make the choice. You need to be aware there is a cost coming with it. I'm telling you from my experience, it's worth it. And I'm sure there's a couple of you that have tried things like that and they know the journey is worth it, even though it's not always comfortable. But don't take these decisions lightly. Is your roof off yet? And if not, are you willing? Are you willing to trust God to take it off? And for yourself, even whilst you might fall apart, to not fall apart and never fall deeper than into God's hands. Are you willing to follow him? Where you are, at school, at work, at home, authentically, vulnerably, honestly. I know my roof isn't off, not completely. I'm hoping to get glimpses. But I'm trusting it's worth it. And I want to invite you and the Holy Spirit to take our roofs off. Please, give it a chance. Father God, my roof is not off yet. And I love my boxes and my bubble Help me in my unbelief. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust in the invisible, 
more than I do in the visible. And God, this morning I want to make a conscious choice. And Holy Spirit, I invite you. Please lift off my roof. I trust that you will not leave me alone during those moments and that you'll always be with me when we walk through deep waters. That you'll comfort me when I and when we walk through valleys of shadow and death. But please do take the roof off. Let me see you for who you are. Open our eyes so that we may see who you are. Lift our roofs. Lift our roofs. Thank you for meeting us in our times of need. Thank you that we can come with every single need and ask. But I don't want to be satisfied with only asking. I want to see your heart, God. I want to see you beyond my own boxes. Father God, I ask this morning that you give us a new vision. A vision of how you see us, where our roofs need to be lifted, how you see this borough, our boroughs, our homes, how you see London. And let us not strive in our own attempts, in our own strengths, but let us be transformed by you. Transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the Holy Spirit working in us, by your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, we surrender. We surrender. Please make use of the silence to tell God in your own words what you want him to do and what you don't want him to do. Be honest about it. Father God, thank you that, yeah, Lord, you see beyond um, the physical, you see into, into the invisible, Father God. And this morning, you see into our hearts, Father. And Lord, we just want to come and lay before you the things that are in our hearts, the things that are important to us, 
the things that are less important. We want to give you everything that's in our hearts, Father. We ask, Father God, that you will come and um, reshape them where, where a different shape is required, that you would reform them, Father God, that you would, um, yeah, Father God, come and, and change and shift our paradigms, that we might see you differently, that we might see this world that we're in differently, Father God, and see you for who you truly are, Father God. Remove the shades from our eyes, Lord, in, in which we've been looking at you all um, incorrectly, Father. And, um, yeah, Father God, thank you that um, you, do, you, you do care for us so passionately and, and so much, Lord. And we just want to say thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that, um, yeah, you just see what is in our hearts. And, um, yeah, Father God, this morning we just want to we ask that you would um, just accept these things that are in our hearts, Father God, as a, as a sacrifice to you, Father, this morning, as we just come and lay them before you. And we just come and ask this now in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. time well spent between you and God. Um, you are here. What is so evident is um, the big faith stretch for these guys were not just themselves and their own vision, but doing it for a friend. <laughs> it was not even the selfish ambition to, um, for the great calling upon their own lives. And uh, so often we, even in the midst of this roof that we are fighting with every day um, we find ourselves fighting for our own destinies our own callings our own purposes <laughs> and uh, you know it's uh, it's so evident that these guys did not even have a selfish ambition to serve their own purposes but uh, they were doing it for a friend and um, and uh, for me it, it speaks so much of of just kingdom and um, the fact that Jesus has has uh, truly called each one of us to, to think beyond ourselves in our own little bubbles. <laughs> um, because it's so easy to stand in faith even for the things that and the breakthroughs that um, we need ourselves. But it's a different story when it comes to, um, to partnering with Him. And as Jessica said this morning, sometimes it looks so different than our plans and, um, and our ideas about who Christ is and, and how does that fit into our box and, um, and our life's vision. And I want to say to you this morning, you know, it, I was again this week um, um, at a, a meeting with, with other Christian leaders as well. And it was um, one moment when um, one of the pastors actually said, you know, it's um, God has always been with me and always um, um, been... Um, with me wherever I go, and I and I and it just struck me again that God doesn't go where, wherever we go, <laughs> and and I'm saying that because I know what He meant. But what I'm saying to you is, the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly again and saying, it's not about where we are going, and it's not as if the Holy Spirit is following us wherever we go. It's 
us connecting with his plan and his purposes. And then you bow your knee and you realize that, um, you know, God is so much greater than our callings and, um, you know, our purposes and the ways that we box him in. There's a, there's a place that we partner with him in a kingdom perspective where you are willing to lay down the, or take off the roof <laughs> um, in order to please him, um, in order to, uh, to fulfill his um, life's call. So let's stand this morning and um, we're going to end off, there's such a beautiful song, I think it's the, was it the, the,